Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Our hearts and our thoughts go out to the the individuals and their family and their friends. You know, the physical wounds will heal and hopefully quickly. But uh, the trauma, um, I can only imagine how significant it will be for a long time. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the voice of Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim speaking yesterday after the shocking stabbing attacks on Sunday in Chinatown. Three people taken to hospital with non-life-threatening stab wounds. A 64-year-old man with a record of brutal deadly violence in his past in in custody let's discuss now with my guest vancouver police chief adam palmer and i'm very pleased to welcome him back chief palmer thank you for coming on this morning good morning mike happy to be here thank you i appreciate it a lot first of all let's talk first about the, the victims here in in this attack and can, can you give us any update on how they are doing and the, and the nature of their wounds here yeah, thank you. Um, I'm not going to get into the specifics about their wounds, but what I will say is there was uh, a couple in their 60s, uh, man and a woman from Burnaby, and also a young woman in her early 20s from Vancouver who were the three victims in this attack. All three were taken to hospital, as was mentioned in the opening, with non-life-threatening injuries. They have been yeah. treated, and they are now out of hospital. As far as ongoing care, um, you know, our investigators... Um, have been in touch with them for, you know, formalized statements and gathering evidence and also our victim services unit to provide wraparound supports as they work through this trauma. That's good to hear that they are out of hospital, but as we heard in the opening there, physical wounds can heal, but the, the psychological mental wounds can last a lot, a lot longer. Let's, let's talk about this attack. Is there any apparent motive here? Did, did this person say anything before these stabbings so as far as the motive that is something that our investigators are looking at very closely that's something that we always want to determine you know in many crimes motive is quite clear you know it could be robbery it could be hatred it could be uh could just be straight up mental health um, you know monetary gain there's many different motives that people have to commit crime in this particular one, we haven't nailed it down yet. We don't know for sure what it is. I, I'm not going to get into specific statements this person may or may not have said, but that will form an important part of the investigation because we want to drill down into why this person committed these acts. Right. I, I can understand the sensitivities around uh, the early stages of an investigation. Can, can you rule out a, a hate crime at this point, though? Nothing has been ruled out at this point, right. uh, but nothing has. I can't tell you definitively one way or the other on that. That is an obvious angle that uh, our investigators and the community are very concerned about, and we want to make sure that we go through that aspect very, very uh, carefully. And because that, uh, if it was the case, of course, will form an important part of the uh, the case in the prosecution. Yeah. But we we can't nail that down right now. Speaking to Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer about the Chinatown stabbings, let's talk about the arrest here. A 64-year-old man arrested, uh, uh, I guess, a short distance away. Can you tell me how how is how is he caught? So when the actual event happened, so we're talking about uh, Sunday evening in Chinatown. Uh, it was about six o'clock, just before six p.m., and it was right in the 500 block Columbia. So near Columbia, 
in Kiefer, kind of right in the heart of Chinatown near the uh, War Memorial, if, if your listeners are familiar with that uh, specific yeah. intersection. And there were closing remarks being given up on the stage by the organizers, and it had been a you know very successful festival and really uh, great to see the huge crowds back at Light Up Chinatown. And, but right as it was closing, there was a commotion off to the side. And of course, you know, when these things happen initially, there's always a bit of uncertainty, sort of what's going on, what, what, what's happening in the crowd. We did have officers like right there, right on scene, who were actually working at that event. They responded immediately into the crowd, determined that these three people um, had been attacked. They immediately rendered first aid and immediately began to radio for other officers for backup and start a search right away for the suspect to get the description out. They did that, and a few blocks away, just uh, in the downtown east side, other police officers arrested the suspect very quickly. Okay, that's good to hear. That's good to hear that he, this the suspect was captured quickly. When, when people take a look at the the charges now that have been approved in this case, so three counts of aggravated assault. I, I think sometimes when people hear that, they they're wondering why a charge would be aggravated assault, not attempted murder. Can you explain that? Right. So there's different levels of assault. We, we sort of classify them as level one, two, and three. Level one would be, you know, you get punched in the nose. Level two would be assault with a weapon or assault causing bodily harm. And level three, which is actually aggravated assault, it's the most serious type of assault before you do get into an attempted murder. And that would be um, any kind of assault that wounds, maims, or disfigures. So it's, it's a much more serious type of assault and would include things like um, stabbings. Okay, 64-year-old man, Blair, Evan, Donnelly, and British Columbians now have been learning about, about the record here. He had been free in the community on a day pass from the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital in Coquitlam, earlier found not criminally responsible for the 2016 stabbing death of his own daughter. And I've just been reading some of the background in that case, and that particular death of his daughter was absolutely hor- horrifying and gra- graphic brutality. Why was this man on the streets? Well, that's a good question, and that's something that we're all asking Mike, and that's something that will form part of the investigation. And, of course, um, you know, his record is public record. It's open source. If anybody Googles his name, you will see that incident you referred to, as well as um, some other things that this fellow has been involved in. You know, it's interesting because he's not... He's not from Vancouver. He's not somebody that was on our radar uh, at VPD. We've had no dealings with this person prior. Um, he's from up north originally, and uh, in more recent years has been out at um, you know the Forensic Psychiatric Institute out in Coquitlam at Colony Farm. So he wasn't somebody that we were aware of that was even out uh, on release. Mm. So these are all wow. questions that we're asking and trying to get to the bottom of it. Do you, do you think you should have been advised? That this guy was out in the street? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just sort of say probably in more general terms, like when some, it, it, there's actually probably an interesting sort of, um, you, you've got so many disparate systems going on. You've got some people that go through the criminal justice system um, that would end up, let's say, in a federal penitentiary for the type of crime we're talking about with his daughter. When somebody like that is released onto p- parole into the community, um, either at a halfway house or full parole, we have really good connections with federal corrections and uh, parole officers, and we're aware of dangerous offenders that are out in the streets. When they're going through the mental health stream, which is the situation we're dealing with here for um, 
not criminally responsible due to mental disorder, the, the NCRMD designation. Um, I would say that the notifications aren't as good. Some, some of the more high-profile ones do make it out, but these, uh, there's a lot of these ones that, um, there, no, there is not a good system in place, I think, to notify people. And quite frankly, if a person's just sort of let out uh, to wander wherever, how do, how do we even know where this person's going to go on the lower mainland? I, I don't know what kind of restrictions were put on him. Can you comment on the random assaults that we continue to see in the city? This is something that you've been highlighting for a long time, but this list is getting very long here now. I mean, we've got this incident here now. People will remember Paul Schmidt stabbed to death by a stranger outside of downtown Starbucks. Justin Mormon stabbed to death in Yale Town, again, by a random stranger. Miguel Machoro, the Mexican tourist who was brutally stabbed in a Tim Hortons, again, by, by a random stranger. What are your? Can you comment on on this this straight this trend we're seeing of these random assaults and sometimes in deadly deadly assaults? Yeah, thanks. I can, Mike. So, with that, that was something particularly um, in 2021 uh, or 2020, 2021, and into 2022 when COVID was sort of at its height, and we saw a rise in random stranger attacks in community. We also saw a rise in anti-Asian hate crime. Uh, both sort of happening happening simultaneously around the same time. What I can tell you that, um, you know, the numbers that we put out before, we were seeing, you know, four plus per day. Those numbers are actually down and they're trending in the right direction. And we put a lot of effort into those types of uh, stranger attacks. We did do a lot of public education, as, as you've mentioned, a lot of media attention on it. But we put a lot of resources into it, both frontline patrol uh, officers and also detectives and we actually had a, a whole project stood up called Project Reclaim, um, which was dealing specifically with the random stranger assaults. And we've, we've seen uh, the fruits of those efforts pay off, and the numbers are down. I, we're just refining the numbers. We will go public with it when we do have the numbers refined, but those stranger assaults are down. Um, uh, you know, the community is aware of it. Everybody's reporting them when they happen, but we're... Yeah investigating them, arresting them, and actually our success rate is very high. It's uh, approaching 70% of these people are being apprehended that are committing these crimes. Okay, last question for you. In the case of Blair Evan Donnelly, the man arrested in these Chinatown stabbings, he is in custody, correct? And yes. Can, can you confirm that? And is there any, should the community be feared, should people be afraid or concerned that he'll be let out again? Uh, yeah, no, I can confirm 100% he's in custody. So we're now we're talking, you know, two different streams of play. So the on the criminal side with the new charges he's facing, um, Crown Counsel um, through the judicial system, they have held him in custody on that. I know he's got a hearing coming up in relation to that. But because he also has this other stream of play in his life through the NCRMD and the mental health stream, um, there, there's also ability to hold him as well under those mental health provision. So th this person, I'm very confident this person will be held in custody. Chief Palmer, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mike. You heard my conversation there with Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, the investigation into the Chinatown stabbings on Sunday. Three people taken to hospital with stab wounds. A 64-year-old man in custody, Blair Evan Donnelly. Let's check in now with Barry Penner, British Columbia's former Attorney General. Very pleased to welcome him back. Barry, thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. Good morning, Mike. 
Yeah, good morning to you. You know, people are learning about the history of, of this person, the suspect here who has been arrested, Blair Evan Donnelly, who had been free in the community on a day pass from Forensic Psychiatric Hospital in Coquitlam, found not criminally responsible by reason of a mental disorder for the 2016 stabbing death of his own daughter. Uh, can you comment on, like, if, when someone is involved in a, in a, a violent incident like that, a deadly incident, how do they end up back on the street, and do you have concerns about it? In the case of this gentleman, uh, he was prosecuted. He was charged and prosecuted uh, in tri uh, trial, and his lawyer brought forward a mental illness defense. Yeah. And uh, for about 200 years, there has been uh, a recognition in the, the British and Canadian law and, and most other Western democracies that in order to be held criminally responsible for something, and to face punishment, you have to have had a mental intent to have committed the offense. Now, most of the time, we just assume somebody must have intended to do something. But if they're so mentally ill as to not really appreciate the nature and quality of their acts, then, uh, again, for about 200 years, courts have recognized that it's not appropriate to uh, punish them, per se, but rather treat them as uh, a patient or uh, someone with a mental problem. Now, it doesn't mean that they aren't then separated from society. They are. Uh, in this case, there's a review board appointed by the provincial government, and uh, periodically they would assess him uh, pursuant to the provisions in the criminal code, Section 672. And uh, I, I, I can only assume that at some point a uh, determination was made that uh, this gentleman uh, should be released uh, on a day pass into the community. Yeah, I'm just looking at the report in the Vancouver Sun this morning, Barry, and after the death of his daughter, which was absolutely sickening, brutal attack, and in which his daughter was stabbed to death, it, as the Sun reporting this morning that later after that, in 2009, he won the he won unsupervised community visits, and while he was out on one of those visits in 2009, Sun reports this morning he stabbed a friend while in a psychotic state. So he was let out and stabbed somebody else. Why, at what point do they keep, you know, at what point can the public expect that someone like this would be kept locked up, despite the mental illness? Well, that's uh, a good question, and I'm sure uh, most people are thinking we need to uh, put a greater emphasis on public safety. And yeah. uh, even if that means there's, at times, uh, less opportunity for uh, what's called rehabilitation, um, I do believe the public has a right to feel safe on the streets. And, uh, and in these types of situations where someone has demonstrated a capability of uh, not just injuring someone, but taking their life, um, I think the, uh, the balance has to swing in favor of public safety. Now, when I was Attorney General, I brought forward a number of recommended amendments to the criminal code to my then federal counterpart, uh, then Minister Nicholson, and... It, I actually had a receptive audience, and we did get a number of uh, amendments made. So you, these and these reviews are not annual because it would put the victims through the the grinder every year to see whether or not the person would be released. Uh, but I think there's there's still more opportunity for further amendments to put a greater focus on public safety. Again, where someone's clearly demonstrated an ability to uh, commit heinous acts such as murdering yeah. their own daughter. Those annual review, release reviews that you mentioned can re-traumatize and re-victimize people 
as they have put through put them through that grinder as you described how often do those reviews happen now they're not annual anymore how often do they happen we just have 30 seconds here yeah uh i had suggested maybe up to five years but the federal government went with moving it to three years and they came up with another designation where you could designate somebody a dangerous offender um, or a high risk pardon me high risk um and they're thereby not have such frequent reviews but okay um but it's not always applied. And in the case of Darcy Clark or, not, uh, or her former husband, Ellen Schoenborn, uh, the courts actually did not uphold it in his case. And so he, believe it or not, okay. was deemed not to be a high-risk offender. Barry, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, very pleased to welcome back to the show now Kim Boland, the award-winning investigative crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. And I highly recommend her recent work, including the latest on British Columbia's Gang Wars, her new series, too, on unsolved murders in British Columbia. Kim, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. Let's start with your latest investigative report on the high-profile unsolved murders in British Columbia, and I love the headline in the Sun, Murdered by Mistake. And people may remember this case of correctional officer, officer Bikram Randawa, who was gunned down, killed in a case of mistaken identity in British Columbia's gang wars. Let's listen. First, let's listen to a report. Let's go back in time here to this report. You're going to hear Global News reporter Romina Dea here. You'll also hear the voice of Delta Police Sergeant Gary Cooner here in Bikram Randawa. Have a listen to this. Randawa, a corrections officer who had aspirations of joining the RCMP, had just finished buying groceries May 1st last year when he was gunned down in the parking lot at Scottsdale Mall in a reckless daytime shooting. The suspect's amateur getaway captured on cell phone video. The vehicle dumped in Burnaby and torched. At the time, there were questions. Was Randawa involved? Was he targeted because of his job? As a result of the evidence secured to date, investigators are confident that Mr. Randawa's homicide was a case of mistaken identity. All right, that report from Global News, and I recommend Kim's work on on this story, this case still unsolved. Kim, this is a tragic story here. What, what, What jumps out at you? Well, it's really tragic because we know this gang war has been raging really for almost 20 years. If you look back at the different incarnations of it across the lower mainland and you could be in a house uh, living your life peacefully and you don't know, uh, just like Bikram Randawa didn't know, that two doors down is someone who is targeted in the gang war. He drove a similar car. He lived on the same street. So he goes out on his day off. Uh, He went to the gym uh, near 72nd and Scott Road, and then he went across to buy his groceries. So, you know, uh, police haven't said too much, uh, but I did find out when I was doing this investigation uh, that he was mistaken for United Nations gangster uh, Amarpreet Chucky Samra. Uh, who is the person who was living two doors down. Samra, of course, was shot to death outside Vancouver's Fraserview Hall on May 28th of this year. Uh, So, you know, there are people that are involved in this war. They're not even being that careful about who they target. And in this case, you had someone who moved to Canada for a better life, was working really, really hard for a number of years, was on the verge of joining the RCMP, and he ends up being killed by mistake. 
Yeah, and people may remember this case, and, and this was touched on in the report we played, that in the immediate aftermath of it, when he had been killed, you know, people start asking questions, like rumors start circulating, and questions start being raised. Oh, okay, he was a corrections, he was a corrections officer, but was he in, was he involved with, with gangs? Like, is that why he was targeted? It reminded me a bit of, of Paul Bennett, uh, the, the Surrey hockey dad who was gunned down in his driveway again in a case of mistaken identity. And there were rumors going around in the immediate aftermath of that as well. Uh, oh, was he involved in something? So that was around. Yeah. This is, go ahead, Kim. No, I was just going to say it's really unfortunate. And I do understand yeah. why people ask the questions. And I do understand that the police have to investigate all possibilities. But you think they could come out with information uh, quicker about uh, the real motive in a case. In this one, it was really clear very early that the intended target was Chucky Samra. I think police knew that within days. Uh, I started hearing the rumors within days, but it was only when I was actually looking at this investigation and checking property records that I could see the two houses literally two doors apart. Yeah, absolutely tragic. And the case is, as you as you point out, is unsolved. What can you say about the investigation? Where are we at here now? Yeah, we almost need a new term because it's not really unsolved. They have a very strong idea of who did it. It was young gangsters involved with the Brothers Keepers. Uh, they're in a strong rivalry with the United Nations gang. And he was targeted uh, by these people. There are identified suspects. Search warrants have been executed. I've talked to people close to the gang conflict and I don't mean law enforcement who've given me some details that match exactly what I'm what police are also saying. So, you know, it's a case where they know who did it. They've got some evidence, but they don't have enough to meet that very high threshold in BC to get charges approved by Crown prosecutors. Wow, that's that's incredible. And when you take a look at the state of the gang conflict here in Metro Vancouver and beyond, I, I recall police putting out the advisory not that long ago that this gang conflict was spreading beyond the lower mainland throughout British Columbia and even even outside our borders. What is the status of this gang gang conflict? Like you mentioned, the Brothers Keepers, the United Nations gang that were apparently in, involved in, in this uh, un- really tragic mistaken identity case. What is the status of that conflict right now? Well, they're all still involved and there are many, many unprosecuted cases. That's the term that I would use because police do often know exactly who the suspects are. And it's just a matter of collecting enough evidence. Now, recently, I have been covering uh, Brothers Keepers accused killer case. He's charged with two uh, murders and the outcome of that case will be announced next month. Uh, But it's, you know, you get a glimpse into just how much evidence the police need uh, in order to get charges approved. In that case, they have, you know, all kinds of text messages that have been going back and forth. Uh, They actually got the accused person's DNA off of, you know, balaclavas and gloves that were found in a burning vehicle that didn't burn all the way. And they also recruited a former close friend and associate involved in the drug trade of the accused. And he testified, he also set up scenarios with police where he got this guy writing on a whiteboard uh, and it was all being secretly filmed. Like that's a very intensive investigation to get that amount of evidence. And we'll see if there's a conviction in that case. 
But you can see that it would be very challenging to do that in each and every one of these murders, especially when they're coming fast and furious. Uh, in the case of Bicker and Randawa, I did also confirm that some of the same suspects were involved in the very high profile airport shooting just nine days later. Still no charges are laid wow. in that case. Um, it's also right. true that in some, in some instances, the suspects are killed themselves uh, before they are charged. So in that case, I don't know why police don't release, again, more information publicly to reassure the public that there aren't literally hundreds of gangsters um, who've killed people running around uncharged in the province. Yeah. And you, you get into some of the great details on this in your latest story on this, including the kind of the, the street code of silence here, uh, which frustrates police and investigations. And the, you also talked to some of the family members of Bikram Randawa. And imagine a, a young guy, corrections officer, dreamed of being a police officer, was hoping to become an RCMP officer, gunned down here because he was mistaken for a gangster down the street. What, you know, these are the, the, the victims, the people who are left behind, his family, his loved ones, and the grieving that just continues. What did you learn from them when you spoke to his his family members? How are they handling it? Well, I think it's still absolutely devastating. His brother Dupinder uh, has recently gotten married. He's now trying to get his parents over. He's the only surviving child, and he would like them to be here with him. He hasn't been able to get permanent residency for them yet. Uh, but he just is still absolutely shocked and devastated that this happened. And he said to me, look, we were really busy working. He was roommates with his brother. They had another roommate. You know, we, we weren't paying attention to this gang war. We thought, well, they're shooting each other. It has nothing to do with us. And then it ends up on your doorstep, right, yeah. in the most tragic of ways. So it's still absolutely devastating. They would like to see charges. Um, and they also think there should be more severe penalties for those involved, right, which is completely understandable. But first of all, you've got to get to the point where you can get people charged. Um, it may still happen in this case. Uh, but so far, it's been a long wait for the family. Got a few more minutes here with Vancouver Sun crime reporter Kim Boland. Keep talking about British Columbia's escalating drug wars now. The gang war spreading beyond the borders of Metro Vancouver. Are police up to, up to the task here in confronting this? And it was just back in, in April, Kim, that RCMP officers warned the public that the lower mainland gang conflict had now spread beyond the borders of Metro Vancouver and it spread across the province. Let's go back to last April here. I've got RCMP Assistant Commander Manny Mann here commenting on the strategies needed to confront this escalating and widening gang war. Let's listen. Okay. Do we, do we have that clip? All right. Okay. I guess we don't, guess we don't have that. Kim, are you still there? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. Let, let's, uh, we'll see if I can come back to that. Um, let's talk about the latest uh, report that you have as well about the BC's anti-gang agency and if they're effective in tackling, in tackling this escalating drug war. Tell me about this report you obtained. Well, I got the report through a freedom of information request. I had heard that this review had been done. It was completed in April. I, you know, as anyone who files FOI knows, it can take a while. So I filed the request in May, was going back and forth and finally received it within the last couple of weeks. And it was pretty shocking. Uh, this review was done 
uh, by some criminologists and a retired superintendent from the Vancouver police. And it said that the agency, Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit, had failed to stem the gang war and was doing a poor job of, you know, basically stopping these guys from shooting each other in public places. Uh, it talked about the governance, uh, lots of turnover at the top. Uh, it said that CFSU tends to focus on these, you know, resource intensive long term investigations targeting high level organized crime. Uh, but then it can't respond if there are like five you know, shootings in a week, three of which result in murder. So it was very, very critical. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised at how critical it was. But the other thing that was fairly shocking is the report was done by April 16th. It wasn't even given to CFSEU. So if the, you know, suggestion is that it's a completely ineffective agency, it doesn't look very good on the ministry that they didn't bother giving him the report. Um, there were a number mm. of recommendations. They were all redacted from my copy. So of the 123 pages, I'm, I'm lucky if I read half of them, but even those half were very, very damning. Right. Let's let's take a listen to RCMP Assistant Commander Manny Mann here. Here he is commenting on the strategies police employ here with this escalating, growing conflict. Let's listen. Province-wide strategies are key, as we are seeing criminal groups moving throughout B.C., many parts of the country, and internationally, as they continue to try and expand their networks and elicit businesses, establish alliances, and target each other. What kind of challenge, Kim, does that pose when you've got this growing conflict that's reaching beyond the borders of Metro Vancouver, elsewhere in British Columbia, elsewhere in Canada, and even internationally as well? Like, are all these different police agencies coordinating and talking to each other? Is that one of the problems? Well, they do definitely talk to each other. And one of the things that was positive in the report, it said that intelligence sharing, you know, across the country, across the province, and in fact, internationally is really, really good. And that CFSU has excellent analysts. So, you know, that is something. But it, the report also said that really CFSU doesn't have the responsibility to investigate gang murders. That falls within major crime units around the province. And locally, of course, we know that it's the integrated homicide investigation team that does murder investigations. So suggesting that perhaps if CFSU has all the intelligence on the gangsters that are shooting each other, that the agency should perhaps be the lead on gang murder investigations. So I do think we'll see some shifts at CFSU as a result of this report. But like everything in BC, I mean, just look at the situation in Surrey. It may take a long yeah. time. Yeah, and then speaking of, speaking of Surrey, we'll be talking in the, in the next segment, Kim, about the, the the policing saga continuing in in the city of Surrey. And this is turning somewhat comical here in the in the last forty eight hours with the the city complaining that they're spending so much money to run two separate police forces in the city. You know, I mean, when we see some of these tragic cases of people being gunned down in the street by mistake in this in this gang war, and then you've got to fight over police jurisdictions, what what are you hearing from that on on your sources here in the minute that we got left? I mean, how is this going to all shake out? Do you think? 
Well, okay, I think it I think there's a lot of demoralized police officers that just want to go out and serve their community and do a good job of the work that they're doing, right? It seems to be at the leadership level and at the political level where the problems occur, and that's really unfortunate. And it also impacts what's happening on the ground, you know, where people are trying to, you know, get gather evidence, get charges laid, right? So, you know, it's it's a problem and we see uh, fewer people going into policing. Uh, that's the bottom line. But we also do yeah. need to have some changes in this province, and hopefully they'll come soon. Okay, we're following it very closely. Kim, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. Thank you. All right, let's talk about intersection cameras. Now, you know what I'm talking about, the red light cameras, okay? So you blow through a red light in an intersection with one of those automatic cameras, takes a picture of your license plate, you get a nice big juicy ticket in the mail. How about excessive speed cameras? Yeah, you've got those in British Columbia, too. They've been installed at dangerous intersections in the province. You speed through one of these intersections. Yeah, same thing. Your ca- your picture gets taken of your vehicle. You get a ticket in the mail. Should we expand the number of these intersection cameras? We've got Victoria City Councilor Dave Thompson standing by to discuss. First, have a listen here to the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. He's the top cop in B.C., and here he is defending these cameras. Have a listen. It's about improving safety, and it's about in, you know, reducing the number of crashes, which means you're reducing the number of fatalities, you're reducing the number of, the number of injuries. Okay, the government a big supporter of these cameras. Should we have more of them in British Columbia? Let's discuss with my guest, Victoria City Councillor Dave Thompson. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me on. You bet. I appreciate it. So let's talk about these cameras now. You, you, you think they're a good, good idea, right? You think there should be more of them? Tell me why. Yeah, I had a look at the uh, statistics here. And in Victoria, we've got uh, a five-year average or a five-year total of more than uh, 4,000 casualty crashes. So those are the ones that uh, the minister was mentioning there with the uh, injuries and fatalities, not just the property damage, the uh, property damage only crashes are, are much higher. So, and and since bringing the motion forward, uh, I've heard of a lot of tragedies. Uh, you know, a pedestrian was recently hit and killed in our region. Um, uh, an SUV ran a red light and smashed into a bus, injuring two passengers. Uh, one fellow reached out to me and said uh, his dentist has been in the hospital for months from a crash, and and another family friend in a coma. So. Uh, a few years ago, Victoria adopted uh, what's called Vision Zero, with our goal being to reach and maintain zero uh, fatalities and injuries from traffic crashes. And we're very far from that. You know, we're, we're at 600, 600 to 1,000 a year. So we need to get moving on that much more quickly. When you take a look at, okay, Victoria is one of the biggest cities in our province. How many of these cameras are in operation in Victoria where you're a city councillor? exactly one one yeah just yeah, one it's, oh, okay. it's pretty it's pretty shocking there's there's 140 of these cameras uh, across the province uh, 105 of them are tuned just to pick up the red light violations and 35 of them pick up both uh, red light and speed but uh, mm. you know we've got numerous intersections where where we're getting uh, dozens of casualty crashes per year Okay, I recall speaking to Mike Farnworth, we heard the clip from him, and he said, look, we are going to install these cameras at the most 
dangerous intersections. So the way they do this, they will look at crash data and they will install these cameras where the most serious crashes are happening. Are you are you satisfied that that is happening? That that is that's how they're doing it, and is that the right approach? I mean, that's that's how they should be doing it. But let's just have yeah. a look at Victoria here. Um, uh, our motion asks for the for the cameras to be put in anywhere where there was more than twenty casualty crashes during a five year period. So, you know, uh, uh, four times a year, uh, and that's that's more than forty intersections. So, wow. uh, I think that I think that the government is right to to uh, make this about safety and to prioritize the the most dangerous intersections. Um, but I think they've got the scale of it wrong. I think they need to expand it. Uh, it's been years and years that uh, this program's been running. I think it was started in 1999, uh, and there hasn't been a lot of growth in the number of cameras. Yeah. Okay, so you're calling for a pretty massive expansion in the number of these intersection cameras. What is a casualty crash? How do you define that? Uh, that's ICBC term for uh, a crash involving injury or death. Okay. Um, so, yeah. and they also have the property damage only crashes, and I think it's like three or four times as many of those uh, as there are uh, casualty crashes. And I had a quick look at the the BC numbers. Um, we're averaging more than a quarter million casualty crashes per year for the last Whoa. five years across BC. Wow. Okay. So do you therefore think, I mean, your motion has got a lot of attention here in the last few days. Do you therefore think that it'd be a good idea to expand the number of these cameras everywhere, given the number of crashes that you've just described there throughout the province, not just in Victoria, but everywhere? Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping Victoria gets the, uh, gets the love first, but I do, <laughs> I do think it would be uh, good to expand them out to everywhere. I don't know if if there's any other city with with a sort of a worse ratio uh, than than Victoria has. Uh, um, I would certainly encourage uh, your listeners to ask their city councils uh, how many people are getting injured and killed by car crashes per year, and and what are your council members doing about it? And and hopefully if uh, if there are some places where um, there's as much need, they're going to be uh, sort of reinforcing that message to the province. Speaking of Victoria City Councillor Dave Thompson, should we expand the number of intersection cameras, speed cameras, red light cameras? Do you think this would be a good use of, of public dollars? Like when you take a look at the cost of policing in this province, if you're going to have police officers out trying to catch people who are running red lights or speeding through intersections, is it more cost effective to install, like automate it, install these cameras instead? Yeah, and I, you know, it is it is a cost saving. Um, they're they're not cheap, but uh, yeah. uh, also police officers are scarce. I was I was on a ride along with an officer yesterday, and they are absolutely maxed out uh, dealing with street disorder problems and gangs and and uh, other things that are a much bigger priority you know violence that sort of thing uh they yeah. don't really yeah. have time anymore you know i i remember when i started out driving you'd be worried about about police sitting there watching the lights that doesn't happen anymore yeah. uh, so it's not just a question of saving money it's a question of actually enforcing the law at all yeah well unless they're trying to catch you distracted driving at an intersection right if you're touching your phone while you're sitting at a red light they yeah, get a lot of people are, that they way. Are, 
they absolutely are doing that and i'm i'm yeah. glad that they are but still there's there's very little of it happening unfortunately right. they're they're very tied up and i feel for them i know they want to be doing this stuff um but uh but uh yeah so if we you, want you, people to obey the law and we've got these laws like don't go through the red light don't speed um i think we may as well be uh turning technology to our advantage yeah. Okay. You mentioned that the the technology is not cheap. How much are these cameras? Do you know? I think they're a couple hundred thousand, uh, or at least they were when they were first installed. I'm, you I'm mean each? They're they're how much? Is that for one camera? That's my understanding. Now that wow. was that was many many years ago, um, and I don't know if there has been recent installations of them. But as with most things, technology is is evolving and driving the price down. Um, I think that that these things do pay for themselves. Uh, the province talks about how they are doing uh, uh, revenue sharing with municipalities. Yeah, and uh, I would I would think that if Victoria gets more of these and and we get uh, some revenue sharing, I would like to see it going into safer road design. You know, and and, and ultimately, I mean, if we can reduce. Uh, uh, the number of red light runners and speeders and, and crashes with injury and death, um, then maybe we can get rid of the cameras, you know, sell them okay. to a jurisdiction that that, uh, that needs them. Okay, well, that brings up the question of whether, and I, I know people are going to say this on the open line, it's a cash grab, right? When you start talking about mm -hmm. revenue sharing from the province and we, we install, we get a massive expansion of these intersection cameras it generates more money more revenue for local government how do you respond to that like if you say hey, hey dave back off here this is a cash grab what do you say to that yeah to me it isn't really i mean we're we're looking at a number of safety measures here to uh, make our streets safer and, and that was part of my ride along yesterday with the police officer uh, we're doing some road design work um, but that takes a long time and it's very expensive. You're dealing with ripping up asphalt and pouring new asphalt and pouring concrete and rerouting uh, some streets. This is this is a relatively inexpensive way to um, improve safety at, at intersections. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I don't think the money, I wouldn't want to see the money going into general revenues. As I mentioned, I think it could go back into funding some of that road design and and accelerating some of that work that we need to really prevent uh, crashes. And I so really earmark like the it then. Idea, so you'd you make know? it like you'd make it like potentially you could make it like dedicated revenue. So you could earmark it and say, okay, if you get one of these tickets for blowing through a red light, well, okay, that's going to cost. It's going to be a pinch in your wallet, but at least you know the money would be going into safer road design. Yeah, and I think I think the public would would support that. I mean, public support for these cameras is already over seventy percent, uh, and and overwhelmingly, the emails that I've received since bringing out the motion, and I've received a lot, uh, have been supportive. Uh, but I think it would help to to raise public support even further if we can say, yeah. listen, this is all about safety. The money's going into safety. Um, the cameras are about safety. Um, we have a lot of people getting hit and injured badly and, and some of them getting killed. And we've, we've got to take quicker steps to, to change that. Okay, Councillor, last question for you. Do you think drivers should receive a fair warning that these cameras are being installed? Like the system that we have now, when, an intersect, when one of these cameras is installed in an intersection for a red light camera, speed camera, sometimes both, 
there's a warning sign there, right? Like they let drivers know, hey, this camera is here, it's watching you, and that could be, you know, a, a, an incentive for people to slow down. Yeah, I think overall that's good. I mean, there's a concern that um, uh, people are going to figure out where they can speed and where they can run red lights. But I, I think the majority mm -hmm. of people are going to look at this and say, oh, wow, we've really expanded the program. There's there's red light cameras and speed cameras all over the place. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to be really careful around intersections. Uh, you do see those signs um, warning you that there's, there's one ahead. And I, I guess that's a fair warning. But also it helps to uh, reduce people's speeds as they approach the intersection. It makes them a bit more aware of what might happen. You know, the light the light might turn red. So they're not going to be slamming on their brakes at the last minute. Um, so I think, it, I, again, hopefully this helps people to drive safer. Okay, we're going to follow it going forward. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for covering it. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call the single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? <laughs> okay, where's the beef? Remember those ads from yesteryear? Th those were effective ads from Wendy's for sure. Where's the beef? Because, of course, the Wendy's patties were the, the square patties, right? They had the sort of the hangover effect, the spillover effect from the beef patty there. You got some extra beef with your Wendy's burger there. So that was an effective ad there. Where's the beef? Now, this is a very relevant question right now in the world of fast food restaurants. When you take a look at these lawsuits now that have been launched over false advertising. Okay, so Burger King on the receiving end of this one along with some other chains as well. Customers saying, hey, wait a second here. When I take a look at the photo of your hamburgers, they, they sure, those photos sure don't look like what I got when I went through the drive-thru or I did a walk into one of your restaurants. Is it false advertising? The photos always look fantastic. I mean, you take a look at a, a photo in an ad of a, of a Whopper, Man, that looks like just an awesome burger, just a mile high with the toppings. And then you go and actually buy a Whopper. Eh, it doesn't really match the photo, I think it's fair to say. Got Robert Carter standing by, one of Canada's top experts on the fast food industry. First, let's have a listen to this report here now. This is from NBC News. At the heart of this beef is how the ads show ingredients that overflow the bun, making it appear 35% larger, or roughly double the meat it has in real life. The court documents show a side-by-side -side comparison of a Whopper served to a customer versus what's depicted in the ads. Essentially, this lawsuit boils down to, you sold me something that wasn't exactly what I got. Burger King is just going to have to show that they were not in a contractual agreement and that what they advertised was what they gave to consumers and that any hyperbole on their part or exaggeration was what a reasonable consumer would expect. The Taco Bell is another chain embroiled in a food fight. It is being sued in New York for allegedly selling popular menu items with half the amount of filling as you see in the ads. 
what do you call a crunch wrap with double the seasoned beef? The ad even claims to have double the amount of ingredients, yet what ended up getting served to customers looks nothing like it. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Robert Carter. Robert is one of Canada's top industry experts in the fast food, quick service restaurant sector. He's with the Stratton Hunter Group. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Robert, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I find these ads really interesting, and these lawsuits are fascinating here. What do you think of this now? You've got Wendy's, or you got Burger King feeling the heat here. you got Taco Bell, these false advertising lawsuits. Do you think these uh, cases have, have got a point? It's it's fascinating, for sure. And I'm not sure really what the, the beef is overall with, with the consumer's perception of the marketing versus what they're getting in the, in the uh, product. Uh, you know, I personally have seen a number of food photography sessions uh, over the years and pretty comfortable to say that, you know, the product that they are using is actual product. I think obviously the way it's being depicted in, in the photos uh, may look at, make it look, uh, you know, a little bit <laughs> of a, either a higher quality, a greater substance or whatever it is, but it's, it's yeah. odd that that consumers are are that there's this lawsuit uh, against these fast food places. I mean, well, I think you know, I think you, you can't you can't really deny that the photos sometimes look uh, a lot more appetizing than what you actually receive in the restaurant. I, I actually had an experience with this sure. recently because I went to a, I actually went to a Burger King to get a to get a Whopper because I actually had seen an ad had been influenced by some of the ads recently from Burger King. I think that some of their ads are pretty good. And I, I've, I had not had a Whopper literally in years, and I just had that kind of craving. So I went and got myself a Whopper, and, eh, I mean, it, it just wasn't, it didn't match up to my hopes or expectations. But I just <laughs> yeah. wonder if, I just wonder if that's kind of normal in this sector. I mean, do people really think that when you see this, uh, this mouth-watering photo of a, of a Whopper, that that's, it's going to look exactly like that when you actually go to the restaurant? Yeah, you know, if you think about the process, and, and you called it right out, you you know, the advertising for Burger King is working for you, and it converted yeah. you to go in and actually try something. And the purpose is to make the product appeal to you and motivate you to go in and make a purchase, right? So, you know, it serves no purpose to the to Burger King and the other restaurant companies to actually do that and then under deliver because then you're not going to come back as a customer. But that being said. You know, I think you could look at any advertising and suggest that whatever the product placement is, is always going to be the best possible placement of that product. Then the expectation across, you know, thousands of units that the employees are going to be able to prepare the product. So it's exactly replicating the what you're seeing in the marketing ad is I, I just don't see how that is realistic and not only the food segment, but, you know, almost in any area of marketing. So it's, uh, it's, it's odd for sure. And I think that, yeah. um, I, I'm not sure what, what it's going to do, you know, what's going to come out of it, uh, in, in terms of in the lawsuits only about $5 million anyway, at the end of yeah. the day. So I'm not sure what the, but there's a lot of overall. them though. There's a lot of them. I mean, You've got Burger King is on the wrong end mm -hmm. of one of these lawsuits, and they're not alone, as you heard in that report. Taco Bell also been hit yeah. by one of these lawsuits. McDonald's, Wendy's, a lot of them have been hit with these similar lawsuits, each of them a class action seeking millions of dollars in damages. 
So when, if this, if these cases, if these suits get in front of a judge, I, I wonder if what would be the primary defense from, let's say, Burger King. Like I suspect they would go in and say, "All right, maybe the photo in the ad doesn't look precisely like what is served in the restaurant, but I don't think it, it's not false if they show, you know, if, if the photo shows a, a bun and a patty and a slice of tomato and a, and an on, and some onion, and that's what." That's what it shows in the photo, and that's what you get. May not look yeah. exactly the same, but you're getting what's in the photo. Yeah, and I, I'm fairly confident to say that the products they're using in those product shots are are going to be exactly the products. Like, do, again, it would serve no purpose for them to have a, a patty that's not an actual patty that they're using. It's it's more, I would suggest, in the positioning. You know, there's always different tricks that uh, companies are using when they're doing photo shoots to make the product look bigger close-ups and whatever it is but i would be shocked and i I can safely say that the products they're using in those product shots are the actual products either they're just you know fluffing them up or whatever it is so (laughs) i think it's hard for uh a, a lawsuit to say that that product in the picture is not the actual product that's being served i think it's just being positioned differently yeah (laughs) it'll be tough i i and i think that's probably what they're you know these companies are going to come and say listen this is the actual product we're using sure you know it's got lighting and you know whatever the other elements to make it look more attractive but it's the actual product right and would you say like given your knowledge of the sort of customer base here in the in this sector like i was looking at an interesting opinion poll on this yesterday on this on these lawsuits and the question in this poll was do you expect your fast food to look exactly like it appears in an ad and the result of this poll was yes 53 percent no 47 percent so pretty much split down the middle so like a lot of people would say look i've eaten a lot of in a lot of fast food restaurants i mean everybody has yeah like of course i don't expect it to look exactly like the ad would you say that's typical of a consumer here yeah i I think so i think you know and I don't think it's again just specific to the to the restaurant industry. I think it's specific to lots of different elements of marketing or social influence and whatnot. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, you you hope that whatever product uh, a company is promoting through their marketing and whatnot is going to be similar to the product that you purchase uh, overall. And you know, within the food industry, obviously, it's so much more difficult because of all the different nuances, particularly for things like a burger. I mean, I don't know if you're going to have the same issue with, you know, beverage drinks or Starbucks mm. or whatnot, but it, you know, a, a product that's got probably, you know, whatever, 10 different steps and multiple ingredients to bring it together and the expectation that every single time that it's being served at thousands of restaurants, it's going to look exactly like the photo that you see in the in the advertising is, I think, is a little unrealistic. Robert, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mike. This is an interesting topic. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.